1: University. University Press Books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up and coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Rahman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at BurnedByBooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at BurnedByBooks. Let's start the show. Having left behind a wealthy family, cutting ties to their money and influence, Trey Singleton is starting from scratch in New York City in the 1980s. A young gay man adrift in the city, Trey soon finds that community can be found in the most surprising of places, the kinds of spaces that polite society doesn't talk about, but which provide solace, comfort, and protection for the people excluded by culture and deprived of rights by politics. Thus begins Rashid Newsom's historical coming-of-age novel, My Government Means to Kill Me. Set in a New York City newly riven by the AIDS crisis, Trey comes to understand that there is a rebellion afoot, a movement that bonds an intersectional alliance between the civil rights movement and the AIDS activist movement, between Black and LGBTQ movements. Along the way, Trey will encounter historical figures who are crucial to these movements, and they will guide his activist spirit, his passion for his community, and even his very desires. Working in a hospice and dealing with the grim realities of untreated HIV AIDS in a place abandoned by the government prepares Trey to understand differently what it means to try and enact change in one's own life, in the communities that are dismissed and othered, and in the life of a nation unwilling to look its history square in the face. Both a gripping portrait of one man striving to bring goodness into the world and a historical novel that dramatizes our other forgotten pandemic, the one too often pushed to the outskirts of our national imaginary. My Government Means to Kill Me does what the best literature does. It asks us to understand that the major narrative of our shared history omits what it cannot assimilate. This is a book of powerful writing, skilled research, and a vibrant passion for the histories that need constant retelling. Rashid Noosen is a writer and producer for the shows Bel Air, The Shy, and Narcos. He currently resides in Pasadena with his husband and two children. Welcome to the show, Rashid.
0: Thank you, Chris. That is probably the most touching and beautiful introduction this book and I have ever received. My goodness. Thank you. Oh, well thank you
1: so much. Um I love this book. I'm looking at it right now. It has one of the the most beautiful and and just sp- like a- arresting covers that I think I've seen in some time. Would you mind saying um whether you had a role in in its development and whether you got choices and and whether you're a fan of the cover too?
0: Oh, I'm a huge fan of the cover. They I think my my editor Um had worked with flat irons design team and I think they had come up They'd shown her a couple things And then everybody there really felt strongly that this this cover spoke to them and they showed it to me And I remember where I was uh, I was working on the pilot episode of bel-air And so Mm. I was we were filming in philadelphia. I was staying in a hotel room I was about to go out for the morning call for the show And uh, my editor called or emailed and said, oh, here's the cover. Tell us what you think. So I dropped everything to open it and look at it. And it was love at first sight. I love, I mean, the book is unapologetically, you know, queer and unapologetically black. And so is the cover. And so I just, it was, -hmm. it was, it was a win immediately. There were no other, I saw no other options. There were no other
1: (laughs) Well, I'm glad because it certainly it, it has that effect on the reader. So I'm glad that the the writer felt the same. I'd love for you to take us through the process of this novel from inspiration to publication, as I know it wasn't a straight line. And this is kind of um, historical fiction. I, I don't know that I want to give it that label, but it has its own, I'm sure, difficult form of multi-genre novels that can be difficult to categorize, especially for the commercial end of things. Would you also tell us how that sort of came about in terms of how you and Flatiron decided to pitch it?
0: Absolutely. So the, the story of, this, of the book you're holding actually begins with another novel that failed. I wrote a novel about the Singleton family and Trey is a member of it and he was a minor character in that novel. And I had a lit agent who went out to, I believe at least 40 uh, different editors and they all said, no. I mean, it was just, it was, it was probably, it was, it was really, tough to sort of no after no, because you look at the list of who we were targeting. And I thought, Well, I only need one yes. And I, I didn't get it. I didn't get it. The mm-hmm. book didn't get it. And so that novel died. And that novel had been to my taste, really conventional, like my grandmother could have read that book, and had <laughs> no objections. And I thought, Well, what are you going to do now? And I, and I wanted to having tried to be let's say square and failed i thought well why don't you just like let it rip and just sort of (laughs) do what you want to do right like you you tried (laughs) to color in the lines and that didn't work out for you so why don't you just go nuts and i had loved trey as a character in the first book i knew him very well i mean i'd written about his family and in that book he had gone off to new york um in in the mid 80s and i thought well why don't i just follow him and I began to write that book and it took about a year and a half, two years. There was a pandemic in here. So the time is hazy. Um, and there mm-hmm. were, there were weeks, if not a few months that sometimes I just stepped away from the book because you know, we were all trying to stay alive. Yeah. So, so that, so that happened. I finished the book. I gave it to the lit agent who'd gone out with the other failed book and she dropped me as a client. Um, mm. Because I mean, to her defense, she thought, well, look, I already went out with something from you. And it was sort of commercial. This is less commercial than that. And you know, I think there was also maybe a feeling that we were, again, we were in the heat of the pandemic. You know, everybody wanted the sure thing. Everybody wanted sort of clear-cut winners. And this looked like, um, I'm sure, a, a steep hill to climb. So I was without a lit agent. And I was ready to quit. I mean, I earned my, my living in television. Uh, I, I told myself, uh, you know, with my, I I, I licked my wounds and said, I don't need this. You know, I don't need to come down here and try to be in publishing. Um, and then my husband let me do that for a while. And then he came around and said, you should try again. It's a really good book. He came together with a list of, of lit agents who, um, Who were more suited i mean had repped people repped gay writers and were closer to the material that i had written um luckily jim mccarthy at distal took me on as a client and he knew exactly who to send it to uh and sent it to naji nieto at flatiron who got the book immediately and was a great editor and um i mean between the two of them really shepherded this book and brought it to market and and convinced me, quite frankly, that it could have a larger life than maybe I thought. I mean, mm. I should confess that I I originally thought, well, the book will just come out straight to paperback, and it will go to every indie and gay uh, bookstore. There will have it. That they sell it in Barnes and Nobles thrills <laughs> me, <laughs> but me. I'm, like, I'm like, oh okay, you know. I mean, I think it's available through Target, and I was like, oh sure. You know, like let's. <laughs> right, I love that. I mean, I mean and, I I mean, that's... Right. and it's not that, I, and I'm not. I don't. Hopefully, I don't sound like I'm being like snobby or condescending. I just didn't know. I didn't. I didn't. I wondered if the book was, quite frankly, too gay and too black to get such mainstream attention. Um, yeah. No. It, I maybe I, the world I, has changed more than I thought.
1: Well and and that leads me to a you, you know my first question is really about the the space that we spend a lot of time in at the beginning which i'd say is a space that for dare i say most target Shoppers is not a space that they think of as a literary space, and that's the space of the bathhouse, Um, and as a space of revolution and solace and desire and community that Trey occupies for a lot of the beginning of the book in popular culture. Anyway, bathhouses are just one thing—a place for anonymous sex. In this case, it is one of the few bathhouses in New York City not shut down by the the city. It's a It's based on a historical bathhouse, and it is very much more than just a site for assignations. Why did you want to dramatize this particular space as a space of community action, community protection, and even creative potential?
0: Well, I think they've gotten a bad rap, Um, and I think they served several vital needs, Um, and that sort of came to my attention as they've been closing. Um, you know, the one I thought of as like, uh, the one that comes to mind is in San Francisco. There was a, a, a place called Knob Hill Theater. And it closed. And as they and as they were talking about, you know, what you could do there, they mentioned that the owners used to let community activists meet and, hold, and have meetings there on the off night, like on Sunday morning, you know? Mm-hmm. And it just goes as a reminder that in a world where you know if you were cruising in a park you could be arrested there really weren't that many safe spaces to be openly flagrantly you know liberated and gay and this was one of them and you know i have to watch myself because every once when i go i want to go well it, they, they, they did more than give people a chance to have sex but you know what giving people a chance to have sex is not anything frivolous mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Especially when that sex has been criminalized, that people should be able to confidently and safely, you know, kiss and have sex and do whatever is a is a is a, is an important is an important service to provide. So I always sort of felt they got um, everybody sort of thought, well, they're sort of gross and scummy, and, and boy, how desperate do you have to be to go there. And I'm like, no, they they could they were lovely. They were a safe haven. Um, they were where a lot of people it was the only space in which they felt like they could relax and truly be themselves in those years so i just wanted to remind everybody (laughs) Mm -hmm. that the that our our current notion is really small-minded and it's and it's one given to us by homophobes i mean Mm. they, they they characterize bathhouses that way because they wanted to close it. And they were really closing bathhouses not so much because they cared about the spread of HIV, but because it was a way to control and diminish our community.
1: Hmm. The New York City of My Government Means to Kill Me registers as both a site of nostalgia and also as a place of danger, both from crime and also as a zone of extreme infection and the spread of the AIDS virus in the 1980s. What aspects of New York in that very fractious time of the city did you want to capture?
0: Well the thing I and this was this was why there are like footnotes in the book. The thing I wanted to capture is Trey is new to the city, but the city is a story that has been going on for you know generations. And so when he steps into the the the, the sort of raving raging river of the city's life, I had to sort of make sure that people realized that some of these fights and some of these battles had been going on before AIDS, uh before the eighties, that there's a, that there's a very vibrant city. And he is a newcomer here surrounded by people who've been engaging in some of the things he's, he wants to engage in for decades. And so it was this thing of like, yes, you want the excitement of someone being new, but you also need to make it clear that the power players and the, the the structure of the city have been set in a way well before he got there.
1: Uh, One of my favorite aspects of the novel are the footnotes, which put, to my mind, literature and history in both Uh, partnership and also competition in the way that you are dramatizing and reading these intersectional histories of civil rights um, and uh, AIDS activism. There's a richness to the history that the footnotes brings to the novel, but I'd love to know what your uh, impetus was to bring them in.
0: Well, there were things that went beyond trades knowing and I needed to sort of explain how this was going. Like, I, I mean, one of the things I was interested in in this book is, I mean, it's the fight against AIDS. And, you know, I could write a book in which the whole thing is gay activists against the Reagan administration. Mm-hmm. But I feel like we've seen that. And so I was more interested in how, even though we're on the same side, we may fight against each other. That there are, there are factions and histories and rivalries that are already going in the gay rights movement at this time. And so there are footnotes that what I love is, and I, and I, and I don't have all the names at the top of my head, but there, there were these groups that sort of split off. They kept splintering every three or four years. One group thought, well, this has gotten too mainstream. We need something more radical. Then they thought, well, this is too radical. We need something very mainstream. The idea of how we as queer people should approach our oppressors approach the powers that be, it's a very divisive issue. There's some of us who are uh, maybe a little more rebellious, a little more straightforward. There are some of us who believe in incrementalism. There are some of us who believe that we've got to argue the case on the terms of those in power. Mm -hmm. And, and, And those voices, I wanted to give them space. And the footnotes allowed history to speak on this moment. Trey can tell you in the prose what it felt like to be him on that day. The footnotes are supposed to tell you how this day came to be after many, many years. Sometimes the footnotes are
1: almost a negation of the fictional story or a contradiction. I loved the moments when you would introduce a character and a footnote would correct some of the information that you yourself had invented. Was it fun to play with what gets to be recorded history?
0: Yes. Um, (laughs) It is fun to get to play with history because I think, I mean, what's, what's... again like what's interesting about history and interesting particularly about lgbtqia history is because we've been so marginalized a lot of what we think we know about people is sort of passed down like like it's very hard when you get past the 1960s to say definitively who's homosexual or who's bisexual who maybe had homosexual longings, but never acted on them. I mean, you know, you might find one cryptic letter and you're trying to decide someone's sexuality and and what what it might be. So I feel like there is this this duality in our our history, which is like, well, come on, we think this has to be what so-and-so was. But if I'm talking about, do we have proof? Can we say things definitively? often the answer is no. Hmm. So I wanted characters who speak like we speak and we just say, well, you know, so-and-so, he's, you know, he's gay. And then to say, but, you know, actually, it's it's really unclear. Hmm. Not all of your
1: historical figures that show up in either in footnotes or in Trey's uh, uh, lessons that he learns through various cultural, artistic, and political figures are good guys. In fact, we have Fred Trump, who, is, who was convicted of real racist real estate practices, along with his son, the former president. Why did you want to draw that particular lineage into the story?
0: That, I mean, That sort of happened organically. I mean, one of the first things I thought of is, you know, most people don't wake up and decide they're going to fight AIDS or some huge cause, Mm. something personal happens, and you respond to it. Someone you know gets sick, and then years later, you find out you've given 20 years to fighting cancer or or looking for a, a cure to ALS. People are typically drawn into political movements because it's now introduced itself into their lives in a way they cannot ignore. And so with Trey, that happened to be a rent strike, and once I knew, well, let's start with this. Let's start with something that affects him personally, and then we'll move to him becoming an AIDS activist. Well, once I knew it was going to be housing, I, you, know, you kind of cast around going, well, who's going to be the landlord? And Fred Trump's just sitting there. Yeah. I mean, there's just, I mean, <laughs> I, you know, he's infamous. He's been convicted. I mean, there's a cons, you know, consent decree. I mean, like all of that is great because it, I mean, it means that I'm not uh, defaming him. I'm not making up horrible things about him. These are part of the public record. So Mm. it made it safe for me to explore them in my fiction. Um, It also gets to the point where sometimes, and this happened with a lot of characters, I I would think of how good they would be in the book and I would almost get scared. Like, I don't know, do I want that? Do I need to drag that person in? And it almost became a a feeling of, Well, you're gonna hate yourself if you write the book feeling afraid. Hmm. And the worst of all, like, what if I end up putting in a Fred Trump stand-in, and then I have to go all around with people going, "Is this supposed to be Fred Trump?" (laughs) And I have to go, "Well, yeah, I guess sorta, but I didn't. I was scared." You know, same thing with Larry Kramer. Larry Kramer was alive when I wrote this book, and I mean, there are a lot of great things about Larry Kramer, but he's an intimidating guy. And Mm. I was like, God, am I going to put Larry Kramer in this book? I don't know. That doesn't seem good. But then it got (laughs) to the point of like, how in God's name am I going to talk about my main character becoming one of the original members of ACT UP in New York City? And he's not going to cross paths with Larry Kramer? The world wasn't so big. Mm. So a lot of times people found their way into the book because I I couldn't justify, I couldn't look myself in the eye if I had excluded them from the book.
1: You just brought up ACT UP, and, you know, Trey will end up being at the center of the organizing effort that will become ACT UP, one of the most impactful AIDS activism organizations of the time period. You write beautifully and tragically about this period into which ACT UP came into being. What was it like to have returned to the pandemic of the late 20th century while the 21st century pandemic was raging?
0: Oh, it was i mean it was it was rough because it i mean it was all around, right it's pan- I, I would leave the pandemic in my reality to go to the pandemic in my imagination, which also yeah, happened that to sounds be a pandemic terrible <laughs> that it happened it was it was it was it was, it was rough because you were like, how did we you know that you realized that well, this is the second time this has happened in the lives of many of us, why aren't we smarter about this or more compassionate about this? um it also i mean you know i'll just as an aside as i watched the you know the you know as we fought COVID, i felt not that anybody was going to make this high on their priority list that heterosexuals owed the lgbtqi community an apology Mm -hmm. because so much had gone at us during the aids epidemic of why can't you guys just you know why can't you exhibit self-control why can't you stop having sex Uh, and just exhibit self-control i mean good god it's killing you all you have to do is stay away from each other and 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 the disease wouldn't spread like this what is wrong with you and then we just had this pandemic where again it was like you know we were told stay away from your family don't gather in large groups it's harder than it looks isn't it Mm. it is hard human beings want to congregate they want to be with each other they want to they want to sh- express affection and love and you can try to shame that out of people you can try to criminalize it but you can't stop it and mm-hmm. during the pandemic telling people that they couldn't visit their elderly parents or, or be together as even though you had science on your side i think it's worth acknowledging that's a really big ask and that's really hard to do mm. and maybe maybe straight people shouldn't have been so smug the first time around.
1: Well, absolutely, and and I just couldn't help think of the all the different kinds of mirroring, even down to Fauci, being the being the public face of public health for both of them.
0: Oh yeah, I mean, I mean, it was, I mean, that was. I mean, when it lines up like that, as a writer, it's just you know, it's gold. You're like, well, okay. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, and also just, I mean, to, I mean, there was there was, I didn't want to. I didn't want to overtip it. <laughs> that was alternative. But there was one thing when it was a question of should I keep it in or keep it out? And I was happy to keep it in. There's a character who who plays a role in Trey's life and survives the AIDS pandemic. And then we Trey tells us, because this is all, you know, Trey looking back, that he died in the during the COVID pandemic. And there was something painfully beautiful in even that. Hmm.
1: There's some, there some quite good histories of ACT UP. I'm wondering what research you did to bring those activists and the fight they struggled to win to the page.
0: Well, anybody, I mean, I mean, they, first of all, they kept, they kept great notes. Like, you can get their minutes. And that's amazing. You know, Sarah Shulman's Let the Record Show is an oral history of ACT UP, which is great and wonderful and is a, is a great resource. Um, a lot of the leaders uh, did things like ma- the Making Great History podcast. I mean, there is no shortage for those records. Um, they are documentaries like uh, How to Survive a Plague. Um, and so I and, and the truth is, I've been sort of immersing myself in this history you know, since I was in high school, I mean, since you know, it just it's the same way I, you, you sort of if you're black, you sort of immerse yourself in the civil rights movement. So it had all been there for a while. And the thing I kept the most striking thing that I got and this really you felt it from like, you know, the minutes about from act up meetings, as I had to remind myself that everybody in that moment didn't know how the story was going to turn out. That sometimes when we write history unfortunately we do it with the foreknowledge of where it's going and that they didn't have that <laughs>
1: I, I wanted to ask about two figures that, uh, just frankly, have very um, personal. I have personal connections with not that I know them, but I feel very strongly about them, and and ask a little bit why you you wanted them to be in the book, and and that is first Dorothy Cotton, who has a a, a really strong connection to Ithaca, where I live, and um you know and continues on in the Dorothy Cotton Singers, who are. Uh, a group here in Ithaca. And then the other is Bill T. Jones, who I uh, had a the most incredible experience of having him come and do a a single man dance at the college that I went to. And it was a a moment of kind of awakening in a lot of ways for me to what was going on at that moment in terms of um, gay rights and uh, AIDS activism. But I wonder why these two figures who are both fascinating intersectional figures, um, very invested in civil rights, but also invested in all kinds of different activism?
0: Well, the simplest answer is I admire and love them both tremendously. And I appreciate the spaces they have to fill and the rooms they had to walk into and the resistance they would have met, even from people who are quote, on the same team, Mm. that Dorothy Cotton, I mean, she should be on the Mount Rushmore of civil rights leaders we can probably very safely assume she's not because she was a woman. Hmm. And that misogyny ran through the civil rights movement as it ran through the general culture. And yet she found a way to carve out a very important space for herself. And she was not cowed by that sort of treatment. She's also, I mean, like... I mean, the, the work she did uh, for people who don't know, I mean, Dorothy Cotton was, you know, she ran sort of like the education unit for the civil rights movement, teaching, registering people to vote, teaching them about their voting rights and how to fill out a ballot, when to go and, and what, what is legal and not legal. Because, you know, you'd go down there and they'd, they'd go, well, you have a parking ticket, you can't vote. And you go, no, no, that's not true. You can vote if you have a parking ticket. But they were, but they had to, she had to teach people that. Hmm. She also taught people a lot when it came to um sort of sit-ins and wait-ins, you know, uh, desegregating uh, public beaches and pools. She did this with children. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. she's really extraordinary and incredibly fascinating. And I was looking for somebody from the civil rights movement to step into the sort of act up world who I thought would be courageous enough to do so. And, I'd all, and i would all and i and so it was one of these moments where i really looked at I go well where's dorothy at in 1986 and she was in ithaca and i thought oh we're gonna bring her down on the train
1: <laughs>
0: you know i mean had she been in zimbabwe i may not have written her in but i thought my god she's you know she that's not impossible we can get her down for this and so that's how she got in there and 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 i love her so much that her character is the one who speaks the title of the book i mean i was writing mm-hmm. that section and i and as i got through it i look back and i go there's there's the title there it is my government means to kill me oh thank you dorothy mm-hmm. um and then bill t jones i've also just been in love with his work but also in love with who he is and i think of him as somebody who you know even in the world of dance even in the arts even in gay spaces He's black and he's got to deal with the racism that Mm. often ran through the gay rights movement as it ran through society. I mean, that's the thing here. Intersectionality or what we, what we now recognize as intersectionality is an awfully modern idea Mm. that you almost had to pick a team and decide, are you more black than you are gay? Are you with the women's movement? Are you with the, you know, are you going by race? those are decisions that people were kind of forced to make and it was and and it's exceptional to find people who engaged in different movements on their own terms and that's what i think i took from you know Bilty jones and dorothy i just i love that they were able to be well ahead of their times
1: well, and I know Ithaca will thank you for bringing yet more prominence to, to Dorothy Cotton. And I just remember with Bill T. Jones, you know, when I saw him, when I saw him dance that one man program, you know, it was not clear that he would live very much longer. And he has been living, I, I think, healthily um, with with HIV for quite some time now. And so I think oh, he yeah. was really, really on that cusp of the people who began to live.
0: Yes, he, I think. Yes. And it's I mean that he even he survived long enough for the for the medication and the, and the cocktails to kick in is also mm-hmm. extraordinary.
1: One of the ways in which you are interrogating difficult questions for these movements is you go right at what motivation means to struggle. Can you do profound good even when you might have selfish or self-motivated intentions. And you're also interested as you, as you just put forward with how, how various figures have dealt with the question of incremental change versus fundamental structural change. Can you give us some thoughts on how these questions bear out in the novel?
0: Well, Trey is trying to figure out where he wants to, where he wants to dedicate himself in the sort of spectrum of activism. There's something very noble about direct service that he could just stay with Angie and look after Black gay men who have, who are in the last stages and dying of AIDS and give them comfort and care and dignity as they die. That alone would be a very um, honorable way to spend his time. Then there's sort of Act Up, which wants to take the fight to the street, which wants to be very confrontational. to to make sure that the country can't look away from this disease and the horror it's inflicting on people. And so he's got, am am I that kind of activist? Do I wanna get arrested every weekend? Do I want to put my body in danger? And then there's sort of Bayard Rustin and this idea of like political, let's work the levers of power as we have known it. Um, Let's go to the city council and ask for X, Y, Z. And those being three very different places. I would personally say that in the end, they're all valid and they all need actually to be working in concert. Hmm. Somebody should indeed try to go down there and pass the law, but also somebody should be throwing a few bricks through windows. That's, that's me personally. (laughs) Um, but I think what Trey is doing and what I'm hoping other people will do is go investigate all of those avenues and see what calls to you. See where you think you naturally fit. Some people don't have the patience or the temperament to fight for a bill that's going to take 15 years to pass, Mm -hmm. but someone should. Some people don't have the heart for direct service and to see, to, to deal with the mounting losses uh, you know, that, and, and you know the names of the people dying. Some people don't, they can't, they don't have the constitution for that. Some people don't have the nerve to put their body on the line and get arrested. Uh, some people don't live in a situation where that's possible. You got kids, you, you know, I can't get, daddy can't get arrested because daddy's got to go to job and provide for the family. So mm. I think what I'm trying to show is the range of possibilities, particularly when you're young. Because maybe when you're young, you probably could decide at that point to dedicate much more of your time to any of those different avenues. And so what you're watching with Trey is someone trying to see where he's going to fit in.
1: That's beautifully said. Um, Before I let you go, I would love if you would recommend some things you've been reading and and loving yourself recently.
0: Absolutely. I mean, by the way, I mean, one of the things if you ever, you know, if you ever get, you know, want to become a... A, you know, a published author, what's what's great is they they suddenly then send you a lot of books. <laughs> like that has been the delight. I didn't know that. But suddenly you're just like, Oh, this is coming out. Would you like a copy? And you go, Yeah. So um, <laughs> so my reading list. I would start with Algo Dies Dreaming. Zochio Gonzalez wrote it. It's lovely, great. Yeah, um, I, love, Anur- I, I had
1: Sochio on and and what a great book.
0: Oh my god, she's great. Yeah, she's great. A new release is "Brother and Sister Enter the Forest." It's a novel by Richard uh, Mirabella. Just came out. Uh, "If I Survive You" by Jonathan Escoffrey. Mm-hmm. and then also "When They Tell Us When They Tell You to Be Good" as a memoir by Prince Shakur. Um, all I mean, all of those are worth your time. Those are great.
1: Thank you so much. And I I can't recommend enough that people run out and get My Government Means to Kill Me. I think it is a very special book, and I feel very glad that we got a chance to talk about it. Thank you so much, Rashid.
0: Oh, thank you. And also, can I just say, if people, uh, if they're on social media, please, uh, at Twitter, you can follow me at Rashid Newsom, R-A-S-H-E-E-D, N-E-W-S-O-N. On TikTok, it's at Rashid Newsom. And on Instagram, it's Rashid.newson.author. And I will
1: include those on the website posting. So if you miss those, um, you can find them with a link um, on our site. Thanks so much. Thank you, Chris. That's all from me for now. My great thanks to Rashid Newsom for coming on the show to talk about his brilliant and groundbreaking debut, My Government Means to Kill Me. You can find links to purchase his novel and all of his recommended books at burnedbybooks.com. You will also find ways to follow Rashid on social media. Stop by the website to catch up on previous episodes and sort through hundreds of recommended titles for your next great read. Next week, I welcome back to the show the extraordinary Rebecca Mackay, whose newest novel, I Have Some Questions For You, leaves yet another mark on American literature. Until then, this has been Burned by Books.